2: Welcome to the program. It's the Tuesday edition of The Words of Stand On For Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is, as you know by now, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, whatever the question might be, life questions, what we believe as Christians and why. Um, Maybe you're having a problem with particular Bible verses. I will do the best that I can to help you answer those questions. The way you can contact us is by calling 340-9585, that's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free outside of the local area by dialing 877-630-KSLR, that's 630-5757. You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also use our free. Calvary Chapel mobile app to send the questions in. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call us is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just one button, the call now button at the top of the app, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, it's 340- 9585. I was listening to uh, the worship sets uh, just before we went on air here uh, from our Easter service. I'm just so excited. such a blessing. Paula was singing, but of course the whole team was up there, and um, I just feel like worshiping. Sometimes I feel like preaching, sometimes I feel like worshiping. Uh, That was just great. Well, because it's Tuesday, we don't have any um, events scheduled, so let's just get to some questions. The first one is from our email inbox, uh, sent in anonymously. Uh, He or she says, I've heard people talk about how there will be food in heaven, and I know there are kid worship songs out there that are verses like a big, big table with lots and lots of food. I'm not familiar with that song, by the way. Uh, And then uh, the writer says, 1 Corinthians 6.13 says, God will destroy both one... And the other, referring to the stomach and food, doesn't this mean that there won't be food, or we won't have a stomach in heaven? Uh, Anonymous, the First Corinthians passage is just really, really talking about going to destroy the body. You know, we have divided attentions. We who are believers, we want to please the Lord, but at the same time, we've got this insatiable flesh. Uh, that wants to destroy us and and that's what paul is talking about he's talking about um the the human nature will be destroyed so that's not a prohibition it's food now we can go to revelation chapter 22 and you find out that there there's for sure going to be fruit paula will be happy because she's a fruit nut but uh there will be at least fruit in heaven and yeah we're going to eat i don't know that we're going to need to i think we're going to do it just because we want to uh, obviously, I, I can't wait to get there and be able to eat. Uh, imagine how wonderful it tastes and nothing is going to make us gain any anyway weight because we're going to be in our glorified, resurrected bodies. But there will be food in heaven, um, and um, we'll just have to see what it's going to be all about. Personally, and I get questions about heaven a lot, but personally, Anonymous, I like not knowing um, what to expect. Uh, I like the idea that there are mysteries and treats adventures that we'll never be able to fully understand until we're there and I think a lot of the time the reason that we don't have more description of heaven I think it's because God doesn't want us to know we don't need to know all I know is that when we get there it's going to be great now one other comment and then we'll go to the phones Um, I do know for sure that uh there will be food in the millennial reign we have more information about what happens in that thousand year reign of christ on earth but in the new heaven and the new earth not so thank you very much for your call let's go to line one we've got sergio calling from san antonio sergio thanks for calling you're on the air
3: hello sir i just uh i had a question and uh by the way i enjoy your show Uh, you're very clear and i like that you're very calm when you uh you teach the word
2: Thank you, Sergio. Uh,
3: and um, my 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 question is, and I guess um, uh, I believe that uh, there is our Father, which is God, and I believe that there is Jesus, which is uh, God's Son, and I believe that when Jesus left, he um, he left the Holy Spirit to watch over us while he was preparing a place for us. And uh, on a lot of, a lot of shows that I hear, they say that Jesus, like on this Resurrection Sunday, they say that Jesus rose himself. And, and uh, I heard a couple of people say that, and I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense because he, he asked for God, you know, why have you forsaken me? So I believe that God rose him up you know he, he raised him up so I'm just I'm wondering why, why do people say that there's only one God and it's just there in unity when it's actually three people three persons okay and if you I can, can answer explain that. that
2: thank you Sergio I'll, I'll do my best uh, a couple of things and I, I don't have the specific verse um, in front of me I'll get it to sometime during the program today but um, the Bible says that Jesus was raised by the father it also says that Jesus was raised by the Holy Spirit. It also says that Jesus raised himself from the dead. So that's why people say it. It's very, very important. Jesus was never out of control on the cross at Calvary. Uh, he was a willing victim, which means he wasn't really a victim at all. Now, we know he was mistreated and, and, and uh, mishandled, but, but uh, he, he was not a victim at all. Uh, death on the cross was a triumph now here's the thing that you've got to understand about the relationship within the Trinity Sergio God is his father we know that but Jesus is not just the son of God he is that but he's also God the son the second person of the Trinity we also know that when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit is declared with power to be God so we've got three persons in one godhead that's really important one essential nature one essential unity uh, one essential character all of the attributes of of god are shared by all three persons of the trinity however it doesn't mean that the father is sort of the head of the corporation and jesus and the holy spirit are junior partners They're all completely equal in every possible way. And when we understand that, then we have this mystery that we call the Trinity. It's hard for us to understand, Sergio. Uh, We add one plus one plus one, we come up with three. But the truth is that we can multiply one times one times one, we come up with one. And the Bible is as clear as it can possibly be. The Lord your God is one God, the Hebrew Shema. At the same time, All three persons of the Godhead are declared with power to be God. Now, for me, Sergio, and I don't know if this will help you as much as it helped me as a young Christian, uh, I understood uh, that all three were God, uh, and I understood they had different roles or different positions within the Trinity. Not subservient one to another, but just these are the positions they took. The Father, who loved you so much that he sent his Son to die for you, Sergio, the Father wanted a relationship with mankind once that was broken by sin in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. he could no longer walk in the cool of the Garden. He could no longer have fellowship. He knew at that moment that he, he had to send his son to die for the sins of the world in order to restore relationship again. So he sent his son. His son's job was to reveal the Father. Philip, don't you know by now, if you've seen... Me, you have seen the Father, Jesus said. That's how essential their oneness really is. We also know, Sergio, that when Jesus was ready to go, he told his disciples that I'm going to send another me. The Greek word is alos, and it means of exactly the same substance and nature, only different in physicality. In other words, Jesus was saying, look, I'm not going to be here to walk with you and you're not going to be able to touch me and I'm not going to hold you in my arms, but I'm still going to be here in the person of the Holy Spirit. And he, Jesus said, will lead us into all truth. And he said he will testify of me. So here's the way it really helped me to think about it, Sergio. The Father sent the Son to reveal who the Father was. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will testify about jesus so in other words the spirit reveals the person of jesus to us in all of his fullness so i hope that helps sergio thank you for kind things that you said and thank you for the call let's go to kelly calling from live oak kelly thanks for holding you're on the air
3: Hi, that's Ron. Um, I have a question and I'm going to hang up to take your answer. Um, I want to know if you believe that Christians can be caught in a um, stuck in a spiritual rut. And if so, how would you advise them to move past it or through it? And I'll take your answer on the radio.
2: Kelly, I can do that. What a great question that is. Thank you for calling. Uh, Yes, Christians are often stuck in spiritual ruts. You know, I have said to our church here that routine or monotony is one of the biggest enemies that we have as Christians. And the only way that we can counterbalance that is to be in the presence of Jesus. I say on this radio program all the time, just be with Jesus. But for sure, we can get stuck in a place. Now, in Jesus's seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, he talks about these things. Uh, For example, the church in in Ephesus, um, they were still doing churchy things. Um, An outsider looking in on the church would say, wow, what a great church this is. Look at all the programs they've got. Look at all of the, the power they've got. I mean, that would be a church that looked like the place to be. And yet Jesus said, I have one thing against you. You've forsaken your first love. And what Jesus told them to do to shake that lethargy he told them to repent first of all when we find ourselves in a rut spiritually when we find ourselves sort of uh, in like with Jesus but not in love with Jesus and we need to repent it's as though Jesus is standing right before us every day saying come on let me get closer let me get closer and we keep saying no this is close enough I'm fine the way I am And I don't mean to express an attitude of arrogance there. It just happens because life gets so busy, we crowd Jesus out. And what happens is exactly that. We find ourselves in a rut. We also know that there are other churches that he wrote to, uh, Laodicea, most notably, um, who, who was filled with pride. They thought they were all that, you know, they had plenty of material wealth, Uh, if we went to the church at Laodicea and made a correlation to the culture and the time that we live in, we would say that the church of the Laodiceans had a great big building. It was spectacular to be there. We went to the worship service. There'd be like light effects and fog coming up from the stage. And we'd say, wow, this is the best church ever. Uh, But Jesus said they were so filled with pride that their walk had turned into a lukewarm walk, neither hot nor cold. Jesus said, choose one, because being lukewarm makes me want to vomit. That's the literal translation. And their problem was pride, thinking of themselves more highly than they ought. You think that yourself uh, of yourself as being rich, you think you have nothing of need. But I say to you, that you're poor, pitiful, wretched, blind, and naked. And since Jesus is the head of the church and he knows all things, we've got to understand that his view is the only one that matters. we got other churches in those seven letters that were burdened by sin. And certainly having unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your life, willful sin in your life, can cause your relationship with Jesus to grow cold. I just saw a movie, one of the worst movies of... It's a Christian movie, but but I don't need to tell you the name, but it was just horrible. And one of the main characters in the movie was talking about how, I can't hear God anymore. I just don't feel God anymore. And yet she was madly in love with this unbelieving atheist, wondering why I can't hear from the Lord. Well, that's why, because we remove ourselves. So, Kelly, I think what we need to do is we need to revive our love affair every day. We need to surrender to the Spirit every day. A Relationship is hard. It takes time. It takes work. I also think that we've got to be men and women who are disciplined enough to be consistently in God's Word, in the Bible. I also think that we need to be serving the Lord, offering our bodies as living sacrifices. I think we need to be a part of a healthy Bible-teaching church and serving in that body. And when you're doing those things and you're with Jesus every day, then you're not going to be hot or cold. You're just going to be on fire for Jesus all the time. It's not going to be the ups and downs that we walk. So, yes, Kelly, we get into ruts all the time. It's a very dangerous thing. Uh, I'm a man who happens to like routine. Uh, It keeps me sane, it keeps me uh, with direction, but at the same time, I want to have passion in the routine things that I do. So I think, Kelly, if we will do that, then what we'll find is that our walk with Jesus remains consistent. It doesn't depend on goosebumps, it doesn't depend on how you feel, it doesn't depend on circumstances. Instead, you'll realize the only thing that matters is how close am I to Jesus. So Kelly, great, great question. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Brett uh, from our email inbox. It's actually two parts. He says, why is it that in acts when people, and in parentheses, he writes... Uh, the apostles Paul Cornelius etc uh, when people receive the Holy Spirit they're speaking in tongues or laying hands and being filled with the Spirit or other incredible acts going on but today when one gets saved it's just like okay now you have the Holy Spirit in you but there's no like miraculous things going on no visible filling if you will or anything is described when someone received the Spirit in Acts and the second part of the question is on that note why don't any of the miracles that happen in Acts with the early christians happen today lame being healed dead raised to life etc very important questions brett Um, we need to understand first of all what the miracles were in the book of acts and what the entrance into the into our world um, by the holy spirit really really accomplished Um, in the early church uh, i'll just use the the uh, example that you gave, the three, Uh, the Apostles, Paul and Cornelius, well with the Apostles, Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit, then they went of course to Acts chapter 2 into the upper room, and that was where the sound of a mighty rushing wind and the cloven tongues of fire set upon them, and then all of a sudden there was people speaking in other languages, known languages, by the way, in, in the book of Acts, not gibberish, but known languages. And the reason that it happened like that, the reason it was so spectacular, is because it was the entrance, the initial entrance of the Holy Spirit in his new ministry in this world, his ministry of revealing the person of Jesus Christ testifying of him. And so this was a never-to-be-repeated thing. The Book of Acts, and I think when people start thinking about tongues, and especially, Brett, with these um, overly charismatic churches, and I, whenever I say that, I want the, the, the audience to understand that, that we are a charismatic church here at Calvary Chapel. We believe in and function in and operate in the gifts of the Spirit, but we also do it in order, with decency. We do it um, given the guidelines for the use of those gifts that were provided in the New Testament. And often when people go to these crazy charismatic churches and everybody's speaking in tongues and everybody's claiming to be a prophet or a prophetess, uh, people are falling over and they see these things, um, you know, they wonder, why don't those things still happen? And why do most churches just ignore it? Well, um, the entrance of the Holy Spirit was spectacular, but it was a sign pointing to Jesus. It was a sign that validated the ministry of the apostles. Same thing is true with the Apostle Paul. Now, I don't think, Brett, when, when um, we encounter Paul's conversion experience, we don't want that. We don't want Jesus to apprehend us and make us blind. So that wasn't normative either. That's Paul's personal experience. With Cornelius, the speaking in tongues was very important because Cornelius, by the way, the same thing happened in the previous chapter, two chapters previous in Acts chapter 8 with the Samaritans, because as the the power of God came upon non-Jews, it was almost an unheard of thing. And so the speaking in tongues was another sign, in this case, to Peter that God had truly given the Gentiles the Holy Spirit the same way that he gave the the Holy Spirit to Jews in the book of Acts. So it validated the call of God and the work of God. Today, um, when somebody gives their heart to Jesus, what we have to know by faith, because of the word of God, that now we have the Holy Spirit in all of its fullness. One thing that's important to remember here, Brad, is though there may not be the same type of accompanying signs, as there was in the book of Acts. Sometimes they do occur. I also think it's important to note it doesn't matter what you're experiencing, whether you're having an emotional experience or not, we have to take Jesus at His Word. He says he's given us His Spirit in power. All we have to do is obey. So we really need to understand the value, the purpose of the Holy Spirit. On Uh, In relation to your second question, why don't the miracles that happened in Acts with the early Christians happen today? Uh, They do, um, not the same way, and certainly uh, those were signs done by the apostles to validate their ministry given by Jesus. Um, But at the same time, um, there are apostolic style ministries all over the world where people don't have the light, bread that you and I have in, in the West. And God still does miracles. There's still people that get healed. They're the blind that are able to see. Uh, God appears to people in dreams and in visions in, in other parts of the world. And the reason is because they don't have the same quantity of information or experience with Jesus that we here in the West do. So there are still some of those miracles happening. I think there's another reason. These are the most important reasons uh, for the lack of miracles that we see in churches today, Brett. The first is that we have forsaken the concept of holiness. You know, the apostles were serious about their personal holiness. They were walking with Jesus. They understood the privilege and honor of being called by God. We don't. We count on grace. We are so cheap in grace that. Oh, I can still have sex with somebody. God's still with me because I got goosebumps or because I spoke in tongues or because I had an experience. But there's no power in our lives. That's because we've forsaken the idea of holiness. Secondly, uh, we wouldn't recognize a real miracle. We've so cheapened miracles, Brett, that we go into church and we get a goosebump or some pastor knocks somebody down and we, we credit that to the Holy Spirit, that nonsense. If you want to see miracles, go out and tell people about Jesus. If you want God to use you to do miracles, go out and tell people about Jesus. That's the whole point of the miracle. They're sign gifts. Jesus said an evil and adulterous generation seeks after signs and wonders. So we got to be okay with walking with Jesus. My last comment, we're getting close to the end of the first half hour of the program, Um, Brett is this, you know, we read the book of Acts and we lose sight of the fact that almost 30 years of New Testament history is encompassed in those 28 chapters. Almost 30 years. And so as we read it, we're sort of reading an overview of the first century church and, and how the church was introduced to the world. And it seems like you can read about a miracle or something spectacular happening in every chapter. But imagine over 30 years how many days and nights there were for the Apostle Paul. Read Second Corinthians and you can get an idea. Well, there were no miracles. There were no miracles at all. It was just putting your head down and going, drudging through, fighting the fight, being chased in and out of towns. And we have the idea that, we'll just one miracle happen after another, and it just wasn't like that. There's a lot of time where life is just very ordinary, and it's the believer, Brett, it's the believer, the Christian, who can honor God in the ordinary times, the believer who can worship God in the ordinary times, in the absence of miracles that's the christian that honors the lord with all of his or her heart we're going to experience shopping we're saying god do this miracle for me do this miracle for me one other thing that i'll i'll note i said that was my last one but one other thing Um, you go to those churches where there's these phony signs and wonders it's all about god do this for me do this for me your prayer life bread and mine are the best indicators of where our heart is with jesus are we content where we are, doing what God's called us to do, and are we doing it with all of our hearts in the absence of signs and wonders? That might be the most miraculous thing of all. Really, really good question. Thank you, Brad. I appreciate it very, very much. Hope you can hear the music. We are at the end of the first half hour of the Tuesday edition of the show. Um, For your live calls and questions, 340-9585. Or you can call us toll free at 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to The Word of Santa for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to our final thirty minutes today. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Sergio, I hope you're still listening. Uh, but let me give you some verse references for uh, raising Jesus from the dead. The Father raised Jesus from the dead. You can find that in Acts two twenty four, Romans chapter eight verse eleven, and 2 Corinthians chapter four verse fourteen. Uh, that Jesus raised himself from the dead John chapter 2 verse 19 and John chapter 10 verse 18 let me read that one because this is really magnificent he says speaking of his death no one takes his life no one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again this command I received from my father and then we've got references for the Holy Spirit raising Jesus from the dead in Romans Chapter 1, verse 4, and First Peter, chapter 3, verse 18. So the Trinity is hard for us to understand, uh, but um, at the same time, um, there's, they all have an equal role. Uh, one more that I want to read for Jesus raising. And he said, Jesus answered them, that's the religious leaders. He said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again. In three days, so there's no competition, there's no um, tension uh, within the framework of the, the the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, our Triune God. But we we always have to remember, Sergio, that that Jesus is God, as much as the Father is God, and as much as the Holy Spirit is God. That's one God, ever present in three persons, all of them sharing the fullness. Paul writes in Colossians, of the Godhead in bodily form. Let's go to another question here from uh, our mobile app. This is anonymous. Uh, So if Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were secret believers, was it considered hypocrisy to continue their involvement in the Pharisees and all of its privileges? What about someone today who chooses to believe in Jesus without belonging to a body of believers? Anonymous, the second part of your question is really important. Regarding Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, uh, we need to give them some grace. Now, clearly, and I said this in response to a question yesterday uh, about uh, Nicodemus and Joseph, Um, you know, clearly uh, they missed out by not leaving everything and following Jesus. That's what he calls everybody to do. To be my disciple, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Every one of his disciples that he called, he went up. Matthew is a good example. Matthew was rich. Uh, His business was thriving. He was a tax collector. jesus went up with two words follow me so yeah joseph and nicodemus were we would say hypocrites um, because they, they they didn't really want to let go of their fame or their fortune they didn't want to be cut off from the only religious experience that they'd ever known in their whole lives so we have to understand that at the same time we need to give them grace because that doesn't happen to us when we first get saved either. A lot of us are afraid to tell even our friends and family. I'll tell you a quick, embarrassing story. Uh, Most of you who have been listening friendly at the time know that Paula prayed for me for 13 years. 13 years. And my life fell apart so dramatically that when I gave my life to Jesus... I was I mean my my transformation was radical. But you know the one person I didn't tell for some time was Paula. Why? Because I had such pride. I didn't want her to come and say, you know, you were right and I was wrong. So Paula just watched this transformation and didn't have any explanation for it. Now obviously she knew something happened because I was a completely different person. But, but I didn't just get rid of my pride. In the same way, in our culture, we have people that don't want their employees, employers to know, rather. They don't want to, to their old friends to know because they don't want to be made fun of. Well, Nicodemus and, and Joseph had a lot to lose. Now. The second part of this question is spectacular, Anonymous. What about someone today who chooses to believe in Jesus without belonging to a body of believers? Two things. One, and not being judgmental here, but I would question their salvation. I really would. Um, if you've really met Jesus, you want what he wants for you. If you've really met Jesus, You want to be obedient. God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey Him. If you're not obedient, then then there has to be some question in your mind or your heart about whether or not you really belong to Jesus. And I think, Anonymous, what we do is we give way too much credibility to the words people say without looking at the life that they're living. And for me, frankly, it is impossible it is impossible to understand how a real Christian would not be a part a contributing part of a body of believers. I know we get lazy, I know we're spiritually undisciplined, I know that there's a lot of things we'd rather be doing on a Wednesday night or Friday night or a, Saturday, a Sunday morning um, relative to, to our church's schedule. But, but you know, if you're a Christian, is isn't it true by definition that you want to please the Lord. I had a question on this program yesterday, what about some who say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus said, depart from me, for I never knew you. Well, there's a whole bunch of people who say that every Sunday with their church attendance. They faithfully carry their Bible to church. They listen to the message. They'll stand up and clap their hands during worship, but they leave and their lives are unchanged, and they never really contribute in a body, and that's really, really sad. I think it's a, it's a personal tragedy. You can go to all kinds of websites and find professing Christians saying, oh, you don't need to go to church, other websites. Oh, I've been hurt in church, so I'm just trying to protect my heart. Well, that's so unchristlike, so contrary to what the Bible teaches us. So someone today who chooses, who says they believe in Jesus, but doesn't belong to a church, a body of believers. I'm not talking about formal membership. We don't have formal membership here at Calvary. We claim people if they show up twice. Okay, now you're ours. But but you need to be contributing part of the body, not a spectator. That's not sacrificing anything. That's not costing anything just to go to church. And I would question whether or not they really understand who this Jesus is that they met. The same thing, anonymous, would be true for people that say they believe in Jesus but don't really read the Bible or even really believe in the Bible as the the inherent, infallible Word of God. Because they just don't invest enough in it. Same thing is true with prayer. How can you love Jesus and not want to talk to Him? So, yeah, I, I would say that is a good sign of hypocrisy. One final thought here on this anonymous Hypocrisy, the, the, the Greek word when we encounter it in the New Testament, uh, is an actor. You remember the old Greek tragedies and comedies? They would have masks, and the same actor would, would, with different masks, portray different parts of the character, a smiley face, and then the other mask would be the, the frowny face. Um, they were pretenders. I think the Church has always had and still has a whole lot of pretenders. Thank you for the question. 3409585 here is a question from another anonymous. It says, "Uh, Pastor Ron, I don't understand why God, if he is real, doesn't stop all the evil and pain in the world. God seems like he doesn't care that we suffer. You know, Anonymous, when I get questions like this, my first thought is that too many of us don't care that God suffered as he watched his son take your sin and mine. I think for us to accuse God of not caring after he demonstrated how much he cared and how much he loved us by sending his son to die, not just that, to hang him on a cross between two ordinary thieves, have people spit on him and insult him and beat him. To accuse God of not caring, I think that's—and that well, borders to me on blasphemy. So we know God's real. We know it because He appeared in a human body. We know that they killed Him. We know He didn't stay dead. That's the authority for everything that we as Christians believe. That's the reason we know that other religions cannot be true. Thus, they're false and of the enemy because they deny that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who is God the Son. So to say that God doesn't care is really, really a dangerous place for you to be. Now, as for not understanding why God doesn't stop all the evil and pain in the world, the answer is simple. Peter gives it to us. He says God is patient unwilling that any should suffer now here's what i want you to really think about for a moment if god stopped evil today if god stopped all the the pain and suffering by the way he's going to do that soon we believe that jesus is going to come back at any moment it'll happen so suddenly we won't have time to prepare it'll just happen we can be ready now But there's a time coming when he's going to end all of the evil and suffering in the world. But nobody who's here is going to want that to happen because they're part of the evil. And anonymous for you, what kind of evil do you want God to stop? Do you want him to stop terrorist attacks? Do you want him to stop child molestation? Of course you do. So do I. How about murder? How about lawyer commercials? We all want him to stop that stuff. But you see, if God chose to stop evil today, he'd have to stop it all. You know what that would mean, Anonymous? It would mean that if you had sex with somebody yesterday that you weren't married to, he'd destroy you. If you curse somebody out, if you're holding on to unforgiveness, if you've gotten angry and sinned in your anger, he'd have to judge you now the problem is we we think no 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 I don't mean my evil I mean the other evil in this world we lost an 8 year old just a couple of weeks ago I wish all that evil was gone but there's still people who are going to get saved and so God is patient he's withholding judgment maybe you went out and got drunk you want to be judged I think if we're honest we say God I don't want to see evil well he doesn't either and that's why he's still working by the power of the Holy Spirit in this world to draw people to him so yeah we live in a fallen world don't blame God for any of that that's on us here is a question from Greg. He said, did the promises to Israel in the Old Testament transfer to the church when the Jews rejected Jesus? Greg, the answer is no, absolutely, unequivocally, no. Every promise God made, remember, Colossians especially, it's other places as well, but Colossians describes God as a God who cannot lie, A not lying God literally in the Greek. If God made a promise to Abraham and breaks it, then what keeps him from breaking the promises to you and to me? God made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to David. Is it even possible, conceivable, that God would break those promises? The answer has to be no. That's why we know that the last portion of prophetic scripture has yet to be fulfilled that deals with Jesus returning and fulfilling all of the promises to Abraham so no, we can't claim those promises as the church truth is in our New Testament God has made the church and Christians have comprise the church he's made us some pretty wonderful fabulous promises he hasn't broken those either So no, the Church has not replaced Israel. That is a pernicious theology, Uh, it is evil, it is of the devil, and sadly there are too many Christians who believe it, and I think one of the problems we have with our Bible teaching or a lack of Bible teaching in our Church culture, you see, when you hear Christians claiming those promises that God made specifically to Israel under specific circumstances, and we see him being claimed by Christians. If my people who are called by their name or by my name will humble themselves and pray, that's not a promise for you and for me. If we understood our Bibles better. We wouldn't run into those problems. Here is, oh got call her. Oh, question from Robert, he wrote it in, Uh, Robert says, two questions, please explain what a sign and a wonder is, and where the chapter and verse in the Bible is for this. Next question, where in the Bible does it say the Samaritans and the Jews were enemies? Uh, Second part of the question, Robert, is John chapter 4, but it's all over your New Testament, and it goes back into the Old Testament as well, Uh, there's there's so many references to the, the acrimony between Jews and Samaritans, if they're too numerous to live, but, but John chapter 4, when Jesus said, I must need to go through Samaria, and his disciples were, were, were um, disappointed, um, he looked at the Samaritan woman, she says, why are you a Jew talking to me? A woman, a Samaritan woman at that. Uh, the Samaritans, here's the genesis of that acrimony. The Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Jew, half-Assyrian. Uh, the Assyrians um, conquered the, the ten northern tribes um, before the Babylonian invasion uh, in the south, uh, and the Assyrians uh, dominated the, the, the Jewish people by, by, by killing them and then marrying their women and producing children. They were trying to breed them out of their Jewishness, in effect. And so at the time Jesus appears, we find the Samaritans um, uh, mistrustful of Jews and Jews uh, worse than mistrustful of Samaritans. They, 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 they hated one another. Um, and, and again, that's clear from, from all that John chapter 4, Jesus himself encounters that type of prejudice. Uh, the difference between a sign and a wonder, I think, it's the same thing. Maybe a sign uh, or the wonder is just a phrase of saying it in the book of Acts. We see signs and wonders being done by the apostles and it validates their ministry in the first century church. Whenever Jesus was going out uh, or sending people out, um, he would validate their position or their ministry uh, by giving them the power to do signs and wonders. It wasn't something that was common for everybody, but they they, they they would do these things and then they would always look at the book of Acts. They're always followed by a message about Jesus. So it's very, very important. Uh, uh, Exodus chapter 7, verse 3, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart and through, uh, and though I will multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt. um, We find that supported in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 10, Psalm 135, Jeremiah 32. 21 but there's many many more Uh, there's multiple listings in deuteronomy um, uh, nine times in daniel twice in the book of acts five times three of those times are in the second chapter when the holy spirit um came upon the church for the very first time so robert that's what uh what they are um but remember a sign it's just like a sign on a freeway if you want to get off a freeway on a certain road, you look for a sign that says that road's name, it tells you where to go. Well, the signs and wonders in the Bible were signs and wonders that pointed to Jesus. So that's really, really important. Thank you very much, Robert. I appreciate it. How am do I on time. I have to look because, okay, this is a question that will upset some people probably. Wayne wants to know, Pastor Ron, how can Christians support Trump and defend his behavior? He is ruining our country. Uh, Another question that was, can a real Christian be a supporter of Trump? Um, Wayne, and to the other writer, um, Jesus doesn't belong to a political party. I think sometimes we confuse, especially in America, and this is really a fault that that we bear the burden for here in the evangelical part of the world. Um, We've mixed politics and our faith for so long that nobody even knows anymore that they're two completely separate kingdoms. We're to be stewards in this world. You know, one of the things that, that just kills me for both of you, is that that Romans 13 tells us to submit to the government, to submit to the governing authorities. We say, well, no, we can't do that because of Trump or in in the previous administration because of Obama. Um, The truth is, there's a whole bunch of real Christians who voted for Trump. There's a whole bunch of real Christians who voted against Trump. But see, what makes us a Christian is being born again. What makes us a Christian is what we believe about Jesus. Have we met him? Have we been changed by him? And then we have the freedom to make those political choices. So, yes, Christians can support Trump, and Christians can deny Trump. Christians defend his behavior, and they can call out his behavior. The real question. The question is, should we as Christians. I'll be bold enough to say this, Wayne, I don't think any Christian should ever criticize any politician that they're not praying for with the right heart. Now, obviously we all have opinions, but it's amazing how much Donald Trump has changed the political landscape inside the professing Christian church even. You know, in all the years, uh, the last eight years, Uh, It was President Obama who was doing things that were so ungodly and yet there was a group of real Christians who cherished the fact that well, everything he's doing, he's doing because he cares for people. Now we've got just the polar opposite in office. We've got a guy who says and does horrible things and yet we've stopped, at least we've stalled, that's a better word, we've stalled a slide of eight years. Can you imagine eight more years had the other candidate won of a progressive agenda that wants to strip away all right and wrong, strip away all morality? We have so much damage that was done in the eight years of our last president. regarding who can marry who, regarding that we have choices about what gender we are. And all in the name of righteousness, we've had since 1973, every administration has given their approval to murdering babies. 65 million and counting. Those are things where Christians have to take stands, personally, and this is just my own opinion. I cannot see how a Christian could support somebody who is in favor of abortion. I just don't get it. And yet they would say to me, well, I don't see how you can support somebody that wants to deport people who who just are coming here for a better life. So the truth of the matter is, there's Christians on all sides of the issues. I think what we've got to do is stop conflating the two kingdoms. We need to honor whoever's in office Whether we agree with them or not, we need to honor their position, and we need to do it for Jesus. I just had somebody write in and say, I was listening to Glenn Black this morning, and he said something on the radio about 100 Iranian Christians being persecuted or something and pleading for help from churches in the matter. Do you know anything about this? If so, would you mind explaining what's going on? Um, I I really don't. um, um, The United States has denied entry. Uh, to about 100 iranian christians and activists are pointing to trump in the process so you know the thing is we can't trust what the media says read your bibles get close to jesus and don't worry about all of this other stuff um and don't listen to glenn beck glenn beck is conservative he's loud i understand that glenn beck is a mormon he's not a believer If you understand anything about Mormon doctrine, you wouldn't to anything Mormon had to say ever. Here hey, within the program, really good questions today. I thank you for your calls and questions. You've been listening to the word to stand up for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. We'll be back, uh, Lord willing, tomorrow at four o'clock on AM 630. The word. See you then. Until then, tell somebody that Jesus loves them.